Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. Good afternoon. This is Indigo Radio, deepening understanding, making connections. On air every Sunday at noon, we're a group of educators seeking to learn through engaging with others in our community and throughout the world. You can also find us on Facebook at Indigo Radio and on Instagram. The views and opinions expressed on this program are those of the hosts and guests and not the radio station. Last week, you heard Nina Kunimoto and Assis Castellanos interview David Vine, author of Base Nation, How U.S. Military Bases Abroad Harm America and the World. Um, and they discussed the consequences and purpose of the over 800 known U.S. military bases abroad. This week, um, you're joined by Marisa Nielsen and Nick Oad, and we'll be discussing the foster care system in Vermont, the current statistics on those who have become wards of the state, and the history of the foster care system. We'll hear from Joe Derry, a local foster parent, as well as Judy Dow, a Beneke researcher and edu educator. We'll ask questions about and analyze the role, of these, uh, sorry, the role of the state as it relates to family life from the early 1900s to today. So welcome. Welcome. Thanks for, thanks for being here with me today, Marisa, and thanks for everybody for tuning in. I thought it was really important. Marisa and I were talking this morning a little bit about um, what happened this week in Florida <clears throat> with the 17 students who were unfortunately gunned down in their own school. And as teachers, of course, this is something that's really concerning to us. Um, but I did want to give a shout out to all those youth across the nation who are walking out of classrooms and planning actions because it's absolutely fantastic to see young people involved and what these issues that are affecting their lives. Um, there is a walkout planned, and um, we'll give you more information later on in the show about that. We did also want to let you know that there's so much information uh, actually about the foster care system, about taking care of our children in the state, that we are interested in doing another show. Um, so hopefully there will, there will be a part two, um, and that will include the prison system here in Vermont, and also the recent um, opioid crisis that has struck the nation. Um, so please tune in for that, and we'll let you know when that's going to take place. We're going to start our show with a song. Uh, it's called Took the Children Away, and it's by Archie Roach. And we'll be back soon. Thanks so much. This story's right, this story's true. I would not tell lies to you Like the promises they did not keep And how they fenced us in like sheep Said to us, come take care of him Set us up on mission land Told us to read, to write and pray Then they took the children away the children away The children away Snatch from their mother's breast Said this is for the best of them away Welcome and the police came Said you've got to understand 
Welcome back. You're listening to Indigo Radio on 107.7 FM, your community radio station. That song was Took the Children Away by Archie Roach, which is a song about how the English settlers um, uh, went to Australia and stole the Aboriginal children away from their parents um, when they were colonizing Australia. Um, Some of the lyrics say um, they fenced us in like sheep. Um, The welfare and the policemen said you've got to understand. We'll give them what you can't give. Teach them how to really live teach them how to live, they said, humiliated them instead. Um, So we chose that song because there are some similarities, we think, um, with the system that we see today and our children. And Nick, you wanted to mention one other thing? Right. I just wanted to correct myself, actually. Um, So I had said that there was walkouts planned, but I actually saw an email this morning from the ACLU um, saying that they're going to be holding an information session because there has been some concern for parents about students' rights and their ability to walk out of classrooms um, and how that right is protected by the First Amendment. So there is a, a, a workshop by the ACLU if parents or students are interested on Thursday, March 1st at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. It's a Students Know Your Rights training. Um, <clears throat> And you can find that online at on the ACLU's website. Um, so our show today is about foster care, uh, the history of foster care in our state and um, currently what it looks like. Um, I should let people know that I am a foster parent mm-hmm. in Brattleboro right now. Mm-hmm. Um, Nick, can you tell us just a little bit about the statistics of foster care right now in 2017 and where we stand? Sure. So... Um This information I got actually from the DCF 2017 Outcomes Report. You can find that online. Um, Basically, I was looking to see how many children were in custody um, in the state, in the in state custody. And so as of September 30th, 2017, there were around 1,200 children in state custody, uh, 1,250 to be exact, Um, around 450 were the ages of infant to five years old, 332 between the ages of six and 11, 452 between 12 and 17, and then about 28 were 18 plus. Um, And I looked also to see how many kids were returned to their families, of course, because that's a really important statistic, I'm sure, as you know, Marisa. Um, how many children were returned to their families in 2017? Actually, only 52% of those children. There was no definite numbers given, um, and 25% of those kids were adopted. So, and then, of course, there's other, um, other ways in which the state takes custody or, over, I guess, overseas in some ways, parents. And so there's something called non-custody cases. And I'm by no means an expert. I wish we had someone from DCF here. That would be great. That would um, be part two, our second <laughs> session. To help us figure that out. But there's something called conditional custody where a judge places a child in the conditional custody of a parent or another family member um, while also ordering family services to stay involved. So there were 600 cases of that in 2000. Um, 17, and then an additional 600 cases of family support, which are cases that are open for ongoing services after an investigation or assessment, um, determines that there's a high risk to this child. 
um, for, yeah. So the other thing that I thought was really interesting because there's this verbiage used in custody and that actually led me to think about prisons. And so I, Marisa w was, uh, found this great website this morning, Vermonters for Criminal Justice Reform, and they had a bunch of statistics also on their site about how many people are in prison in the state of Vermont. So there's 1,750 in prison presently, 150 are women, but there's about 8,000 people on parole. That's and these are Vermonters. Vermonters. Yes, yes, Vermonters, right. Um, they also said that about 1,400 women go through the prison system every year, including parole cases. And that's really important because there are children of incarcerated parents. And I'm not sure whether or not these DCF statistics included uh, the children of incarcerated parents. I'd love to know also more about that. Um, but in Vermont, one in 17 children has an incarcerated parent. Mm -hmm. um, and on any given day, there are over 1,600 children with a mom or dad in prison. Right, and that's a lot of kids. That means that if you're a teacher in a school, at least one of your kids in your class has a parent in prison. Mm. Another interesting thing that we've found, too, is that over the past 20 years, the number of women incarcerated in Vermont increased by 600%, and only 3% of that increase was from violent crime. Um, the majority of women, 72%, are serving sentences of three months or less, many for technical violations and not new crimes. Right, um, and so that also um, reminded me that there's been a lot of talk recently about the opioid crisis, and of course, we'll do more about this on another show, but I think it's worth mentioning now that due to the opioid crisis, a lot of parents are struggling with addiction. Um, and so that means that the state is taking their children. And since 2014, the number of cases where a parent who is having trouble with substance abuse has their child taken, they've increased exponentially. Um, and that's been a real concern with healthcare being cut because now people who have substance abuse problems won't be able to um, receive the care that they need in order to no longer have these addiction problems while at the same time their children are still being taken from them. And we just got an update from one of our uh, Indigo friends who said that 60% of women in prison and jails are mothers. So thank you, Anna Mullaney, for that. Oh my goodness. So we want to play this song for you. Um, it's called My Drug Dealer is a Doctor. It's by Macklemore. Um, he has some great music if anybody's interested in looking him up. But this song particularly addresses the opioid epidemic in the country. Um, around 60,000 people overdosed last year on opioids. And that's a statistic from the government. So there should be an increase in spending on the opioid substance abuse um, issue in the coming year, but because of the healthcare cuts, it's actually going to be in the negatives, the spending on substance abuse across the country. Um, so let's listen to this song. Said it wasn't a gateway drug 
My homie was taking subs and he ain't wake up the whole while. These billionaires, they caked up, paying off Congress, so we take their drugs. Murderers who will never face the judge. And we dance into a song about a face gone numb. But I seen homies turn gray, noses draining blood. I could have been gone, our 30s faded in that tub. That's Prince, Michael and Whitney, that's Amy Ledger and Pimp C, that's Yams, that's DJ A, and I'm making the killing. Now it's getting the tension, cause Sarah, Katie, and Billy, but this been going on from Seattle out to South Philly. It just moved about the city, and it spread out to the burbs. Now it's everybody's problem, got a nation on the verge. Take activists off the market, jack the price up on the syrup. But Purdue Pharma's about to move that work. The drug dealer was a doctor, doctor, had the plug from Big Pharma, Pharma. He said that he would heal me, heal me. But he only gave me problems, problems My drug dealer was a doctor, doctor Had the plug from Big Pharma, Pharma I think he trying to kill me, kill me He tried to kill me for a dollar, dollar And these devils, they keep on talking to me They screaming, open the bottle I wanna be at peace My hand is gripping that throttle I'm running out of speed Try to close my eyes But I just keep on sweating Through these sheets, through these sheets For a horseman They won't let me forget I wanna forge a prescription Cause doctor, I need some more of it When morphine and heroin Is more of your budget I said I never use a needle But short, I'm caught up I'm on one, I'm nauseous No options, exhausted This is not what I started Walking car Guess I lost everything I wanted My blinds drawn too gone to leave this apartment My drug dealer was a doctor, doctor Had the plug from Big Pharma, Pharma He said that he would heal me, heal me But he only gave me problems, problems My drug dealer was a doctor, doctor Had the plug from Big Pharma, Pharma I think you're trying to kill me Tried to kill me for a dollar, dollar. More. 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 Re-up, re-up. That certificate signed the prenup. Ain't no coming back from this Percocet activist. Ambient Adderall, Xanax bench. Best friends with the thing that's killing me. Enemies with my best friend. There's no healing me. Refilling these, refilling these. They say it's death, death. So God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can. And the wisdom to know the difference. And the wisdom to know the difference. Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio at WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You were just listening to Macklemore. My drug dealer was a doctor. And I just want to repeat that um, chorus for you. My drug dealer was a doctor, had the plug from Big Pharma. He said that he would heal me, but he only gave me problems. Our show today is on foster care, um, the history of foster care in the state of Vermont, as well as current um, statistics on foster care. And we're going to go now to an interview with Joe Deary, who is a foster parent in Brattleboro. Um, and she talks about her experiences. So, um, this interview was pre-recorded and here is Joe.
Well, October, late October of 2016. Um, and my, I've, I've had one foster child. He's been with me since about then. Um, and I came to foster care, you know, because of a desire to be a parent. And, uh, but I really, truly had no idea what I was, despite really trying to educate myself, I just had no idea what I was getting into. Uh, I think I was pretty unprepared and, um, it's been a, it's a pretty steep learning curve, as you know. Um, and, uh, and like we were talking about, there's a lot of really difficult things and then there's some uh, pretty amazing things about doing it. is now the playroom. So yeah, there's a good amount of stuff in here. So tell me a little bit more about um, that process of what you needed to do in order to become a foster parent, the courses that you had to take, um, your interactions with DCF, um, social workers, you yeah, tell me a little bit more about that. Yeah, sure. So, uh, unfortunately, there's a great need, as you know, in Brattleboro. And I, I, for people listening, I'm going to keep saying, as you know, because Marisa is my neighbor and she's a foster parent too. But uh, the, you know, the need here it has put such a demand on the Brattleboro office um, that things over there they don't seem to be as functional as they should be. Um, so I was given very limited information about the child that I was going to foster. I also was given just, uh, you know, the first name of a social worker and I had to chase him down, um, on top of, you know, on top of being a working brand new parent. Um, and dealing with a child who had experienced trauma, I also had to do the extra work of like chasing down the social worker just to get him on the phone for like 10 minutes was really difficult. Mm -hmm. um, so it was, it was really, really difficult at first. And I later learned that he was just kind of sitting on our case until he could pass it off to another worker. Um, and so part of, my experience was, you know, that I, the more I learned about what these social workers have to do, um, while I have great empathy I, of, of the sort of intensity of their workload, um, it, it also puts foster parents in a tough spot right now because so much falls on the foster parent. Um, and you have to do a lot of detective work because you might get a social worker who hasn't even read the case file mm -hmm. for your child and can't even tell you some of the things that they're coming to you having experienced or behavior that they've demonstrated. So, um, so you jump in pretty blindly and, um, you know, that, that was really difficult. I will, I will say, um, traumatizing for me mm. to, to sort of feel um, you know, that I couldn't, you know, 
that I just, I really couldn't, I was starting to navigate this system and just had no, uh, it just felt impenetrable kind of. So thankfully we have a great guardian ad litem who was, which are court volunteers. And then he was able to actually step up and provide some information, some background information, which helped me understand. Um, and then after a few months, the case was transferred to a brand new social worker who, when she started, you know, was able to give us a good amount of attention. Um, but very quickly, you know, she also was loaded up with cases. So these social workers, they're used to having, or typically they would have like a dozen cases. And now there are social workers out there who have like 30, 32, I think the last I talked to our worker, she had 32 cases. So there's this, not only is there a dire need for foster parents, but there seems to be a desperate need for more staff over there. Um, Cause that's, you know, my heart goes out to them for doing the best job they can, but it seems really unsustainable right now for everybody. Mm-hmm. Can you, and you just mentioned the dysfunction of the system, and while you were talking, I was kind of, I was thinking about the current crisis with healthcare a little bit, and how there's a middle person, um, there's the people who need healthcare, and then there's the doctors, and then there's the middle people, Um, and I'm almost thinking that it's kind of parallel in this sense, so can you talk about what you mean by the dysfunction of the system, and, and why you think it is like that? Yeah, well, I, you know, part of my journey, um, part of my journey has a little bit been that, you know, as a person who, you know, thinks of themselves as progressive politically, um, and, you know, I'm a reader, I try to stay informed, and I'm an ally, so I educate myself, um, part of this journey has been that realizing that there are things you know intellectually, but when you experience them emotionally, like through a relationship with a small child who's, you know, gone through what he's gone through, or a parent who can't take care of that child, um, then you know things emotionally, and it's really different. It's a completely different way of knowing. And so the time that I've spent about thinking about the dysfunction of our society and um, the system of poverty and the role of healthcare and education and housing in, in creating stability for people and opportunity, even though I've thought about all of that intellectually for my whole life, um, you know, knowing it emotionally through relationships and real people is completely different because I'm coming to this as a, I was born middle class and I now earn a middle class living. So, um, you know, I've had to kind of really, um, you know, I've, I've had to kind of come to, um, to kind of, it's, it's like touching the dysfunction (laughs) instead of just, sitting back from it and saying, um, you know, wow, the world is a tough place. It's actually touching the toughness and saying, how can I help 
Um, how can I actively engage and, and give and sacrifice? And so um, that's something that's, that's, it's a whole other level. And, uh, you know, and I think that, um, I think, so that's been profoundly transformative for me. And I think also my, my sort of practice of um, just compassion has intensified because I feel very compassionate toward the people in, in my foster child's family. And I see their situation as a product of, you know, generational, uh, you know, systems that have generationally affected the opportunities that this family has had. And it's tragic. Um, so would you say then that your analysis, your political analysis, has in fact deepened from having these emotional connections? Yes, okay. yeah, yeah, definitely. Thing that I that I did want to say that I think the the thing that I really struggle with as a foster parent, but just as a human on planet Earth, is how dehumanizing this feels for everyone how this it feels you know like um you know it, it feels very dehumanizing for the parents to be kind of swept up into this legal system and um become just like a number on a court case or a dcf case it feels dehumanizing for the social workers to have to like you know um be so extended beyond what they can do. It feels incredibly dehumanizing for the kids who, um, you know, it, it can be very, um, you know, maybe it's dramatic of me, but sometimes I've just really feared that I'm the only thing standing between him and this system that, could really gobble him up and do do some damage. And so the thing I think about is, you know, so, okay, how do we, if this, you know, how do we proceed now knowing that this is, um, you know, that this feels kind of broken? How do we do this in a different way? How do we do this with a deeper compassion? And how do we do this so that everyone feels valued instead of dehumanized. That was part of an interview with my friend Joe Deary, who is a foster parent in Brattleboro, Vermont, talking about her experiences. Um, so thank you so much, Joe. It was really a pleasure talking to you, and um, it's wonderful to have you as a neighbor and a fellow foster parent. Um, you're listening to Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. We're going to go to a song break, um, and then uh, that will be followed by the history of the foster care system, and we'll be joined by Judy Dow um, for that last segment. So here is If I Were President by Las Cafeteras.
papeles para trabajar Señor presidente pregunto por qué matan al moreno con piel de café Para presidente So they can ride to their future, back to their past Go to the store, get some chips with no GMO Cause my folks, we got a right to know And if you don't know, now you know Me gusta la lima, me gusta limón Pero no me gusta tanta I'm <laughs> 
Welcome back. This is Indigo Radio on WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community station, radio station. Um, today's topic is on foster care, and we're joined in this last se- segment by Judy Dow, who's calling in. Judy, are you able to listen? I am. Oh, perfect. I can't hear you, but I think Nick can. Okay. Uh, hi, Judy. How you doing? Hi, good. How are you? Welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. We wondered, um, we know you have a lot of experience, and we wondered if you could talk to us a little bit about the about your own research on the history of the Department of Children and, and Families, um, and also, I'm sorry, on eugenics. And I, we also wondered if you could talk to us about the roots of the current foster care system in Vermont specifically. Um, sure. So for probably 16, 17 years, I've... Um, researched eugenics and um, just recently have made some connections with foster homes. And so I started looking um, back in um, to the laws and trying to figure out where this first started. And actually, there was an act that was written in 1779, which first uh, addresses guardians and wards of the state and what they determine at that time is that um, that the estate of a parent who is deceased needs to provide for the children before they pay the creditors. And so it's the first time they become aware of, of a situation. And at the same time, they, in the same act, they say that um, the father, the mother, and the grandfather and grandmother um, if they're able, should support the child. Um, And then times change, and in 1884, they create an act for the better protection of children, and um, that seems to be the very beginning because they start using words like commit and binding out. And for your listeners who don't know what binding out means, it's... um, it's a labor system that connects host families with poor boys and girls willing to serve their masters and mistresses as apprentice or servants. Mm. So um, 
So they start using that word in the act of those words in the act of 1884, which um, takes an orphan child under the age of 14 and um, matches them up into a foster home where somebody needs a servant or an apprentice. Um, and then it goes from there to 1896, where not only fathers, mothers, grandparents, and grandfathers and grandmothers but um, a need to support the children, but they add uh, sisters and brothers to the above list. Mm. But by 1908, they um, drop everybody except mother and father. Mm. So... It, it, but, and during this period of time, there's this whole social welfare reform. They start making um, requirements of mandatory schooling, and um, families with large families, like French-Canadian families, um, French-Indian families, um, a lot of the older children were being used to, to um, supplement income from the family or to care for the little ones so that um, the parents could both go to work. And so that mandatory school law started to make it difficult, and a lot of the children started being put on on radar of these people who were watching and enforcing these laws. So in 88, 1888, the state legislature passed an act which forced towns to furnish the relief to children. And it dealt specifically with truancy and a stipulation that that if a child did not attend school because of the lack of proper clothing, the overseer of the poor was supposed to furnish clothing for the parents to for the child for the parents to give to the child. So again, for those who don't under don't know what overseer of the poor is, it was a position that was created in in towns to to oversee um, poor people, to make sure they had their needs met. Um, But unfortunately, it was um, many, many times abused because in the actual law it says the overseer of the poor um, has the ultimate decision, so he can never be questioned by anybody. And that ultimate um, decision-making... with that comes greed and and power and misuse and abuse. Mm. Um, so by 1890, um, the legislation passed um, a, a separate act which specifically stated that the father would provide the necessities for his family and followed it up with a law in 1896 that provided any pre- person who abandons or exposes a child under the age of two years whereby life or death of such child is endangered, they shall be imprisoned for not more than 10 years. So there starts to become penalties attached to um, abuse. And in 1915, there's an act that, um, Act 92, that tries to identify um, specific children um, who they deem to be delinquent, dependent, and neglected. Um, and these words um, come directly from the eugenics 
records and periods of that time. And so they, the law addresses things that kids today typically um, take for granted because they do it all the time, and they couldn't imagine being locked up um, or being taken away um, for things such as um, being at home without proper parental care. You know, when you think of the latchkey kids we have today that are home for several hours, that that would fall under this um, category. Also, not being um, in a house with gambling. And again, if you look today at things like lottery and bingo, you have that same atmosphere that they were looking for. So in 1917, there was an important act um, that was passed by the legislation. And for many people, they believe this is the beginning of the foster home um, foster home program. So this act created the Board of Charities, and um, they established lots of things. Um, but primarily the power and the duty to investigate at least twice a year the conditions on the charges, including the poorhouse, the charges at the poorhouses, the, the, the people that are there. So they're concerned um, because of what I talked before, that the people in the poorhouses, there was abuse in some of these places, and they were using them as indentured um, people, apprentices or servants. And so they were concerned. And so twice a year they were going to try to seek out these children and make sure, you know, that that everything was going fine in these foster and these um Poorhouses. So this act had a great significance on the foster home movement in Vermont. It provided the establishment of not only the establishment of the board, but it granted various powers to accept as wards delinquent and neglected children. So they they have drawn this line up until this point of what is called a normal child and what is called a delinquent and neglected child and so there really wasn't any place for what they called delinquent or neglected children however um for normal children they're what they called normal children there were foster homes right so now um the juvenile courts um have taken over this through the board of charities and uh, they could place a child in a home, a hospital, or an institution. And that's why many people see this as the beginning of the home, the foster home care, 1917 as the beginning of it. In 1919, the legislation did a, um, they specifically forbid the placing of dependent children in the Vermont Reform School. But they stated that they um, that the approval of the Board of Charities and probation was necessary before they could do that. So so a child first had to go and then in front of this board, and they had to decide whether they could should be placed in reform school or not. Um, and and um, the board was responsible for issuing a license to all these institutions to make sure they were operating properly. Um, to foster the children, and um, that was kind of an important. I think I think by nine. I can't remember exactly, but I think by nineteen 
um, 25, there were like 17 institutions in Vermont. Um, and so then in 1921, um, they start passing a law, laws about um, shelter homes. And it's, again, it's where dependent, neglected, and delinquent children were placed for care and custody because if they were dependent, delinquent, and neglected, they weren't considered, quote-unquote, normal children. Um, so, um, so they're trying to find a place, where do we put these kids? What do we do with them? And so they start deciding, okay, we're going to put some money aside to shelter these children. Um, so it's here that the state um, retains more power um, over the bigger picture, and they, and the fact that they're requiring licenses for these institutions, and now sharing the cost of maintaining some of of the children in these in these institutions, they weren't financially connected before that. Judy, can I interrupt you for a second? Sure. Um, there was also this big collaboration um, between the. Um, social workers of the time in, I think, 1919 um, with the eugenics survey. Can you talk a little bit more specifically about that? Um, 1919? Yeah, it was was the one that um, after the Spanish flu epidemic, um, the Vermont Conference of Social Work launched this big survey, and that was what um, created the Vermont Children's Aid Society, I think. Um, yeah, but they did um, that so also. Survey with... didn't actually start till 1925. Oh, I see. Okay. So, but there was national um, board, um, conferences that were happening. They were called um, the Children's Charter, the White House Conference on Ch- Child Health and Protection, and they would come up with um, a series of of um, recommendations that states should be doing once a year. And um, the recommendations could include things like um, every child, um, the right of every child is to have spiritual and moral training or claims of right of a child to understand um, and the protection of that um, personality, which makes him different. And so there's like each year they would come up with maybe 20 different regulations. And Vermont sort of was behind the eight ball on catching up with some of these um, regulations. And so in order to make that happen, um, uh, the Vermont Children's Aid Society was created. Mm. And, again, it was all part of that progressive um, movement uh, to, to create a public welfare program. And actually, I think, let me look here. I think um, uh, yeah, and so at one point they to- they totally do away with um, the program they have, and they then change it to um, public welfare. And I'm trying to look when that is. is it It's right around that same time, so I'm not really sure. I'll run across it as we keep talking, I'm sure. But so, um, anyway, they, um, they, they, it's right around that same time that they, that they decide they need to get their act together. And most, they see most of their problems being rural Vermont. And so 
um, from 1928 to 1931, um, the Vermont Eugenics Survey ran a program in which um, 200 Vermonters, 200-plus Vermonters, um, did surveys all over rural Vermont to make recommendations for the future as to what um, should happen. And so in their recommendations, you can totally match them up with the laws as they change. So you you could see a recommendation and then look in the, the history books for the laws and see, oh, there's the change in the law. And there's a, there are um, people who are very much connected from the eugenics survey and from the um, foster care system of the time, too. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about that? Well, sure. Um, so um, in 1928, the Vermont Eugenics Survey voted to disband temporarily all the programs they were working on and focus their funding and their manpower directly on the rural Vermont program. And, um, and it was a progressive movement. It was the, the progressive people of that time. And they, they felt that they needed to get in step with what the White House was saying, what needed to be done to protect defective, delinquent, and dependent children. The problem was that the methods in which they did this was very subjective. There was little to um, no ob- objectivity that was um, following this. And um, um, Judy, can you be a little bit more specific about what that means in terms of subjective and objective? Sure. So, so there's lots of examples in the in the literature, but one um, for me is um, an example of a mother who is struggling to bring up her children, and um, and the the public welfare people were paying her two dollars a day a week to help care for her children. And in the report it says, the mother is inclined to be morally weak. She may, may, if the mother is re- inclined to be morally weak, she may even resort to questionable ways of living in order to keep her family together. So the law allowed the overseer to break up the home and place the children, if the family is supported, in whole or in part at the expense of the town. So it was these progressive people who determined whether she was morally weak or not. And, and it, so also, it also sounds like that they're talking more about her social, about her situation as a, as a consequence of the social conditions, but they're placing the blame on her as an individual. Correct. Mm-hmm. Correct. And they saw, they saw these as what they called, quote, sore spots where ne- neglected children um, just existed. But in many times, it, it was a cultural component, not necessarily money or, or poverty. Mm-hmm. It was something cultural and in, in the conditions in which they lived. It was different than old Yankees or white Anglo-Saxon Protestants of that time saw as the norm. And so those people who were being targeted, you're saying, were then mostly Catholic or something other than Protestant, that the Protestants were running the... Uh, that's true. Okay. Often that's true, okay. yes. Okay. 
Um, and sometimes there were people who spoke a different language at home, mm-hmm. like French-Canadian. And so what about, I also wanted to just ask you in terms of the foster care system and the Brandon House, I believe it's called. Um, I know that there was the there was the state school that was set up in terms of the connection between eugenics and the foster care system, that there were state schools that were set up um, that a lot of people were being, a lot of children were being placed in. And so um, after the Spanish flu, and the death of many parents, a lot of children who didn't have um, homes were also sent to those schools. Is right. that correct? Yeah, and that that comes to that division I was talking about where they had, they had all these places, quote-unquote, to put normal children, but they didn't have places to put children they deemed to be defective, delinquent, and dependent. And, um, and so these institutions started popping up where they could now place these these children that they deemed to be, I mean, they could be deemed to be delinquent if they missed being in the house by, by 9 o'clock when the whistle blew at the mills. Mm. Um, they could be deemed delinquent if they missed school because we now had a law on mandatory schooling. They could... Um, There's just so many, truancy, all of those things connected with schools could have placed them into the Brandon Institute um, or any others. So then the other problem happens is there becomes waiting lists because there's only so many slots, they become overcrowded, and um, there's all these um, so-called delinquent children they have no place to put, so the Brandon develops a waiting list, and the waiting list is huge from towns all over the state um, where towns are waiting to get these children put into Brandon because they don't know what else to do with them. There's no law that, that provides a home for what they deem to be a delinquent child mm-hmm. and not a normal. So remember, the, there are, quote-unquote, places to put normal children. Mm. but not those that they deem to be delinquent. Mm. Judy, we only have about a minute and a half left in our mm-hmm. show. Um, I'm, I have so many questions, and we'll definitely have to have a part two, but um, maybe as a final thought, what, what do you think the purpose of all of this is, um, especially now that we know these connections between the eugenics movement and um, family services? Well... For me, that it's more of a of a of a fear of um, misunderstanding the needs of some of these families and um, from the past, and I have this fear that perhaps this might be happening some today. Um, that there's a misunderstanding, um, a subjective opinion as to what um, poverty means. Or, or what a household should look like, mm. which is very different for each cultural group. And so I guess for me, my thoughts are, are concerns and fears for the future. Thank you so much, Judy. I'm so sorry that we have to end the show now. Um, we'll have to talk to you again in part two because there's so much more information. Um, but oh. we thank you so, so much for being on the show today. Okay, thanks. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.
This is Indigo Radio at WVEWLP Brattleboro, 107.7 FM, your community radio station. You can find more on our Facebook and, um, on, yes, on our Facebook page. Thanks so much. Get down this Saturday night. Saturday night. Saturday night. Hey, y'all. This is DJ Joey Fez. Like podcast.